This church, Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, is going through a transition. That transition has many parts to it, one of them being transitioning from a pastor of 15 years who has retired. And that necessitates the search for a new lead uh, a senior pastor. It's also a transition of uh, trying to determine using this as an opportunity to strengthen the church by asking questions, uh, looking back, looking around, looking forward. Uh, where have we come from? What was the original vision? What uh, successes and failures and bumps in the road and uh, mountaintop experiences have we encountered in the last 25 years? And then where at now? Where are we at now? And then, most importantly, where does the Lord want us to go? Where uh, do we anticipate being in one year, five years, and ten years? We need to ask those questions because we need to use the wisdom that God has given us and prepare for that future. Um, one of the biggest questions before us, which we'll address this morning in looking at the ministry of Christ, is what size church. Last uh, week we talked about leadership in the church. Next week we'll talk about outreach, and the Sunday after that, unity. This morning, size. The reason it's important is because, uh, for example, uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City and well-known and done some writing, has a monograph on church size. And in that monograph, he states uh, me, a small, medium, and large. Small is 100, 150. Medium is three to five, six, seven hundred. Large is, you know, getting up to eight, nine, a thousand and beyond. And he states in that monograph that for a staff person especially, um, including especially the pastors and the lead pastor, church size has more of an effect on their ministry than does the denomination. That's quite a statement. In other words, Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Independent, Brethren, all the denominations, he's saying that the size of the church has a bigger impact on the ministry of the pastor than does the denomination. Because medium, small, and large churches are so different. And they differ in the type of work the leadership needs to do, ergo, the type of skills that they have, and they differ in the expectations that the congregation has. So you have expectations, and then you have a ministry skill set. And if it's that affected by church size, small, medium, large, then one of the first questions we have to ask ourselves is what size do we need to be as a church, small, medium, or large? Now, who determines that? We don't. Uh, Paul said, look, one plants, another waters, 
but the Lord gives the increase. So we do that knowing that it's the Lord that's going to determine the answer to the question. And we also know that in a sense size doesn't matter. Uh, Nick preached on uh, Jacob's ladder and he's traveling through the desert and his pillow is a stone and he wakes up and he sees angels ascending and descending to heaven. And he says, surely God is here and I didn't know it. And no one there but him. Nothing but desert. And there is God. Uh, Jesus said, when you have two or three gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. But there's a difference in talking about the presence of God and the work of God through the church. By church, we mean uh, throughout time and eternity, those people God has called to himself, and through the blood of Jesus Christ, sins are forgiven, they're born again, they are called baptized or immersed, uh, welded together into this invisible body called the body of Christ that exists for all time and eternity. And that is given expression in each generation in small groups that gather. And that's called the local church or the visible church. And Jesus even said the local or the visible church is like a field of wheat in which weeds spring up. Now, we're not used to that illustration these days. Having grown up on a farm, I've seen the difference. Whenever you plant anything, and you've experienced this in your lawn, in your home, the most uh, quick to grow, fastest to grow, and hardiest to resist the vicissitudes of climate are weeds. Try to plant a beautiful lawn, and you'll find the weeds just show up. Now, we're not used to that because we live in a chemical age, better living through chemistry. And so when I was very young on the farm, we had weeds. We had to chop with a hoe. We had to pull. We had to do a lot of things to fight the weeds, which would take over the crops and render them fruitless. This ain't nothing of bugs. And then chemicals came along herbicides and pesticides. Herbicides kill herbs, plants. And they were selected to kill just the right plants. So you could grow cotton or corn or tobacco or beans. And you drive by, you don't see weeds taking over the field. But it wasn't that way in Christ's day because when you planted a field of wheat, the weeds came in and tried to take over. And Jesus said the church is like that. It's a mixture of wheat and weeds, the visible church. And those weeds are always sapping strength and, and affecting fruitfulness. And so people look at the church, the visible church or the invisible church, and they say, as my father did, I don't want to worship there because they don't need another hypocrite. Of course, he was a little more insightful than some. Some say, I don't want to worship there because it's full of hypocrites and don't look at their own lives of inconsistency and irrationality. And so we think, well, let's apply a herbicide or a pesticide 
And Jesus said, don't do that. Because if you pull up the weeds, you may pull up some good wheat. Just let them grow together. And in the final day, the angels will take out the weeds and burn it in the flames. And then the good wheat and the fruit will come forth. So under the command of Jesus, here we are on the church as a mixture. And we struggle along with that. I've told you the story about a, a pastor in Texas in the early 20th century. Big church, big state, big cities, big churches. And he came, and it was the first church in town, and all the doctors and lawyers and politicians attended there. And after a year in the church, he announced that he was going to preach a sermon on the person that has given me the most trouble my first year in this church. And come that Sunday, the place was packed. The galleries were full. Several people had brought their lawyers. And then he stood up and said, the person that's given me the greatest trouble the first year in this church is me. Because I'm a fallen sinner, and I keep being tempted, and I keep falling short. This is the state of the church. To be a church, I mean, what do you call a church? Two or three? It's usually defined as when you have leadership. In our denomination, you can't be a particular church. You can be a missions church starting up until you have ordained elders. And the Jews are the same way. You can't have a synagogue, they said, until you had 10 heads of household. Then you could have an official synagogue. And so we have an official church when we have ordained leadership. And when we plant a church, elders come from the presbytery and lay hands on and adorn, ordain the first group of elders. And then from then on, they ordain the ones that are elected uh, afterwards. So no, church size is not necessary for the presence of God. But it is necessary for doing the work of God. Because if we're going to preach the gospel and sing his praises and teach people the word of God and teach uh, children of all ages and youth and take care of the widows and the orphans and take care of the mature, it takes many hands. It takes a certain amount of organization and planning. Who's going to take meals this week? It takes uh, leadership. And it takes an idea, well, where are we going with this thing? And this is what happened, I give you here in uh, Acts chapter 2, the developing church. You read here in Acts chapter 2 that on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit was poured out, the gift of Jesus Christ to his people and his church, that Peter got up and preached a sermon, the Peter that fled and denied Christ three times, stood up and preached a sermon, and the people were cut to the quick in their heart, and he warned them, you can... Uh, with many other words, you see at the top of page 7, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Be baptized, repent in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it says down here, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. Well, it started out over here in, in chapter 1. Uh, it says that in verse 15, 
In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. The uh, uh, membership of this church is 135. Uh, and this was 120. Small church is what we call it. Everybody can know everybody else. The pastor can personally know and visit everyone in the congregation. It's a tight-knit group. You don't need a lot of organization. A lot of things get done by word of mouth. And it's just a free-flowing, wonderful group. And then God decides that he's going to add 3,000 people to the group. Bam! And that's why I say God is one that decides, because I don't think those 120 would have said, dump the whole bell of hay on us. You know, but that's what happened. And the next thing that happens is, and then it says later on, uh, there's another verse over here when uh, Peter was preached, where does it say, uh, added to their number. It said it went up to 5,000. Hmm. But then you read in chapter 6 of Acts, in those days, the Greek-speaking Jews among them complained of the Aramaic-speaking Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Well, I left something out. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, it specifically says this problem was caused by growth. They went from being a small church to be a medium church and being a large church, and growth caused problems. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing. And so the author of Acts, Luke, you know, he has a problem with large churches. Because he says they cause problems. And the problem here was one of not knowing each other or communicating well. It says these are Greek-speaking Jews. And the apostles were all Jew-speaking, Hebrew-speaking Jews. In other words, it was a community difference. They didn't know each other. They didn't see each other. They didn't eat together. It was just two different groups. And the apostles didn't know about the problem. Well, they should have known. You know, they're apostles. But they're human. And the church size caused the problem. And it says, look what it says, um, a complaint complained against the, in those days the Jews complained. The people were complaining. They're the ones that became aware of it before the apostles did. And so what are the apostles going to do about this? Well, you know, to be a good pastor, you know, the number one rule for a pastor is what? Always say yes. Always agree. Always go along. Go along with every demand on your time. That's what Moses did back in, in, in uh, Exodus 18. You know, Jethro said, why are you standing here all day and people standing in long lines and, and answering their questions? And he says, well, they come, and so I've got to do what they ask me to do. And he says, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out wear them out. The apostles didn't do that. They failed the first test of being a pastor. They said, no, Jesus taught us what our job was. 
and that is to teach his word and disciple people. And so, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, we're going to have you elect some people that you trust, and then we're going to share, we're going to assign these duties to them. They adapted. They didn't cave. See, they knew the difference between important and critical. Feeding these widows was important, very important. But it was critical that the apostles do the job that Jesus had assigned them because only they could do it. An important task is something that you get to do over and over again. A critical task is you only get one shot at it. In fact, it says when Jesus at the end of his ministry was going to Jerusalem, and it said he set his face like stone. And along that trip, there were many people that needed to be taught, many people that needed to be comforted and counseled, many people that needed to be healed. And he set his face like stone and says, can't do that. That's important. But I've got a critical job to do. I've got people for whom only my life of obedience and my death of sacrifice will pay the penalty of their sin. Only I can do that. And now is the time. John 17, 4, and Father, the hour has come. I must do what is critical and then let others do what is important. And the apostles learned from that, and they said, we have to do what's critical in this situation. We are the apostles. We are the teachers. We are the prayers. Choose among yourself others, and we will share this duty with them. And then it says, well, when I train deacons, and this is the first passage about deacons, the proposal pleased the whole group, and they elected them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. There's no report on how it turned out. They, found, they saw, handled the problem so well, it just disappears. And we used to have a saying when I would train deacons is, uh, you got a problem? Tell a deacon. That's the last you'll hear about it. They solved it so well, it's not even mentioned. But I tell you what is mentioned a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Priests, you see, were in charge of running things, the temple and the alms and the sacrifices. And they knew they were just waiting for conflict to break out among these thousands of new believers. They were just waiting for it. And when it was solved without a conflict or split, they were so impressed. I was involved in a church in another town, and they built like a 2,000-seat sanctuary there after 15 years. And they got the walls up, and I stood there with the senior pastor, and he was telling us concrete and concrete. A week later, they found out that there was a design flaw in the architectural drawings, and the place was yellow taped, and you couldn't go inside because the walls were about to fall down. And everything stopped. And this was in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the Charlotte Observer sent out reporters because they're waiting for the conflict to develop between the church and the architects and the builders. And there's a lot of stuff that's going to go in the paper. And after bringing down Jim Baker, we're going to get another one. This 3,000 church. Week after week and month by month went by and nothing happened. 
And then all of a sudden, work resumed because the architect and the builder and the church got together and they figured out a solution and then they went on with the work. And that impressed the city more than the building itself. And that's what impressed these priests, you see. Well, how was it that they were able to go on with the work even though it caused these problems? Because Jesus had planned for it. Jesus had planned for it. You see, if we say, what size church do we need? And we say, we want, we want to remain small so everybody can know each other. And we want a pastor who's a very good shepherd and can learn everybody's name and can visit everybody. You say, well, we want to be a medium church. Well, a pastor can only know about 100, 150 people. So if you go up to 300, some people are going to be dissatisfied. And then they'll start saying the pastor is doing his job and he'll feel guilty and then he'll end up leaving. You see? Or he will try to know everybody, and he'll neglect his family and children and still not succeed, and he'll burn out. Or they'll just ignore the problem, and then these widows don't get fed, and then there's more complaint, more complaint, more complaint, and they say, well, we're going to go back to the temple and the synagogue because at least we got fed there. This is how critical this was. And so... It affects the skill of the pastor that you call. Is he a great shepherd, a great preacher, or can he also lead? Can he recruit, train, and lead leaders? Can he lead by vision? See how the job description starts changing? Because notice I didn't say visit and know every one of the 300 or 400 or 500. I said leaders. His emphasis changes from everybody in the flock to leaders. Well, then who takes care of the flock? The leaders. And in this church, we've just completed it. The elders have taken the uh, attendance of the membership list and went through it, and those that have moved away and joined other churches, taken them off the roll. Some that were in between letters and phone calls and meetings. I had one this week who responded to a letter. And then they've taken those 130 and divided them up so many per elder so that every member has an assigned elder. And this week we completed phase two and every regular attender has now got an assigned elder. Whose main job is to get you to join, but anyway. No, that's not it. And some say, well, I still don't know who my elder is, so Christy, the uh, church office director and I are working on that and on that board out there we're going to have a list of all the elders and everybody who their sheep is if you don't know you can go look at the list the elders are shepherding in fact if you look at the ratio it says there were 120 people that met together that Jesus had trained and 120 into 5,000 comes out to about 40 or 50 each and that's the ratio. When we had our church in Durham, had a thousand-member church, we divided it by fifty, and that's how many elders we needed. Interesting that math comes up again. 
Another thing we ask is, well, but then the, the, so the church's expectations and the pastoral profile are affected. Um, another is we have to ask the question, what size do we need to be to reach our target area? Our target area is uh, South County, the areas and areas around, Calvert County, South County, below the river. What size church do we need to be to reach those people? Because when you get larger, you get economies of scale. If you have 120 people in worship or 300, uh, how many bulletins do you have to create? You have to make more copies, but you only have to make one bulletin. How many, how many sermons does the pastor have to preach and prepare and preach 120 versus 300? It's called economies of scale. How many photocopiers do you need for 120 versus 300? You see how it works? Economies of scale. And you can use the extra manpower and money and facility to offer more programs and reach more people. And you have a specialized uh, youth minister. And you see how, how it starts going. So the first question is, what size do we need to be to reach our target area? Another question we ask, well, what was the original vision that God gave to the founders of the church back 25 years ago? Uh, what did they have in mind when they bought this property location-wise and when they built this facility? These are the occupancy certificates from uh, the Anne Arundel County Fire Marshal, Inspector Jean Jean. So what do you think the occupancy of this sanctuary is? Can you read that? 448. Now, we've got about 120 here this morning. You see those gaps? If you fill those gaps, you usually do 80%, because after 80% capacity, people start feeling crowded. So what's 80% of 448? Around 350. Medium church. But if you get up to, say, 300, people start feeling crowded, then you can start a second service. You get a lot of people at 11 o'clock service. It's just hard to get here at 930. So two times 300 is a 500, 600-member church. But it's interesting. Here is the uh, fellowship hall downstairs. 204 standing, 95 banquet. That don't work. So you know when this starts filling up, you've got to add space for this. So what did you think that the, the founders of the church had in mind when they told the architect, we want a sanctuary that will seat 448, medium or small? So what does the Lord want the church to do? Uh, what size do we need to do to reach this community? What size did the original founders have to be? But growth causes problems, people. Miscommunication 
cracks develop, balls are dropped. What are you going to do about that? Well, do you think Jesus knew that there were going to be four to 5,000 people on that first time? Well, he couldn't have known unless he was God. But he knew. He not only knew, he planned for it. And look in here. I want to tell you, talk to you about the failure of Christ's ministry. You mean Jesus failed? Yes, he did. You're going to minister. You're the, you're, the, you're the sinless son of God. And you're going to minister full time for three years. And what size church do you have at the end? 120. I could do that. That's not a whole lot of people, people. And it gets worse. In fact, he was born in Nazareth. He spent 30 years in Nazareth growing up and never sinned. Now, surely our example is what convinces people, right? All the people in the Nazareth synagogue when he read Isaiah were furious when they heard him. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. He didn't make a big impact in Nazareth where he grew up. So it says, then he went down to Capernaum, which is a lake town. As there went Peter and all the fishermen, okay? In Galilee, on the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching. Well, what happened? And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted into heavens? No, you will go down to hell. No impact in Capernaum. What's going on here, people? The numbers aren't there. But he had another plan. It says, Jesus came to them and said, uh, no, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called them to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. He appointed 12, and he sent them out two by two. You see, he did preach and teach. He did heal. He did feed 5,000. But most of his time was invested in training these 12. And then we read a little further on in Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place he was to go. So he went from 12, then he went to 72. And who helped train the 72? Well, the 12. So we have 12, then we have 72, then we have 120. And the key was they were trained. Listen what happens. The 72 returned with joy, and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And that time Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said these things. And he said this, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. This is the most excited Jesus is 
in his whole recorded life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke 10 with the 72. I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. He was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. He said, kings and prophets wanted to see what you just saw. What did they see? The multiplication process. There were 12. Then there were 72. Because the critical thing was that not Jesus leave 5,000 believers, but that he left 120 trained people so that the 5,000 could be taught the word of God. Because if you go to Acts and you go down to chapter 2, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The reason this is all important is because Jesus said in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. He says in Acts 1, you should be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We are supposed to have an impact in South County, Calvert County, Maryland, America, and around the world, concentric circles. And what is necessary when a church grows is to have leadership. And Jesus made that his critical purpose. He said, don't you imagine Jesus would have loved to have been there on Pentecost when 5,000 people responded to his ministry? But they couldn't respond unless he paid for their sin. Only he could do that. Because what happened in Nazareth and what happened in Capernaum was it happens to everyone who's in rebellion against God. It's called darkness of mind, hardness of heart like a stone, the will in chains, so that a person cannot understand the things of God and their heart cannot respond to them and certainly their will cannot obey. Well, what if you find yourself in that situation? Well, how do you know you're in that situation? Because you say, this is just ridiculous. You know, a man dying for people's sins, shedding his blood, rising from the dead. Who ever heard of that? The mind can't accept it. The heart, I don't give a hoot for what God wants. Yes, he created me. Yes, he provides everything. But what do I care? I'm autonomous. I can do what I want. And I'm certainly not going to obey his will. And so Peter pleads with them and warns them. The end of that darkness of mind and hardness of heart and chain of the will is eternal separation from God. And he's light, so it's going to be dark. He is love, so it's going to be anger and rejection. He is fellowship, so it's going to be loneliness. In fact, the Bible calls that eternal fire, burning the mind and the heart and the will for eternity. So if even a person doesn't want to know about God or love God or obey God, even a rational part of their mind says, I'm, I, I'm worse off than I knew. There's danger here. But then I'm here to tell you that the solution is much more wonderful than you ever imagined. 
because Jesus trained disciples and laid his life down. The sin was paid for, and the church is still here 2,000 years later, sharing the same gospel that changed 5,000 people. Well, you say, well, I can't make any progress from lack of interest and lack of caring. Well, what do I do? You ask God to help you. To see the truth. To care about God. To obey. You say, I can't do it. I'm dark, stony, chains. But will you help me to want to know you? And God will reply. But he has to help you to even want to. Because we are lost in sin and death. So what does church size matter? It does because we want to know what does God want us to be? What size do we need to share this message with all these people out there? They don't even know their situation, much less the solution. What did the original founders have in mind? And if we're going to be a medium or a small or a large church, what does that mean? What kind of pastor do we need with what skill set to take us to that level? You see how it all works together? Jesus said on Pentecost there's going to be thousands of people that respond to the message after the Spirit is poured out and their minds are enlightened and their hearts are softened. And the critical thing is that I have enough people there to teach them and pray for them so that they can grow and the church doesn't fall victim to the first disagreement and conflict. That's why it's so important that we went through a leadership process and had leaders this morning. But aren't you glad? Weren't those 5,000 glad? that Jesus made the focal point of his ministry, making disciples. Even if he failed in Capernaum and failed in Nazareth, he left 12, 72, and 120. What a great shepherd of the sheep. What a great Lord of the church. Bless be the name of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. That instead of turning aside to important things, he completed the critical things so that those 5,000 could believe and have their sins forgiven. Father, give us wisdom that Jesus had so we know the direction of the future. In Christ's name, amen.